Good day. Today I'm talking with Joanne, and we're going to be talking about the um, the differences between planning and managing and starting a um, an investment fund versus an ad hoc approach. So, can you tell us the elements that go into these sorts of funds, Joanne? Yeah, sure. Look, it's a big question, but if I looked at launching a fund from two major streams. The first one is around the actual product itself, and the second is around administering products. So I'll start with the first stream, which is the product itself. Realistically, if you have a great idea for an investment fund that you want to take out into the market, first and foremost, what you need to think about is what is the actual product? Uh, what are, what's the asset class that you're looking to deliver on and who exactly are you planning on marketing it to? Is it something that will be for retail investors or are you looking at non-retail investors, so high net worth or sophisticated investors, or are you actually pitching to the institutional market? Once you've sort of thought about the nature of the product and the type of assets it'll have, you then look at things like how long do you want the fund to be available for? So it's duration of the fund. And that's an important consideration because that then ties into things like how you're going to measure performance and what type of benchmark you might need to be using in terms of measuring that performance for investors. Really importantly is also how am I going to price the assets. So what's the valuation methodology that you want to put in place? And it's a really important consideration because that will actually tie directly to how you value the portfolio and what the unit value is to a person who's going to be investing in the product. Probably related to that really importantly is fees and thinking about the fee structure. Sometimes the type of investor that you're looking at will also need to be given consideration because fees for non-retail clients look quite different than the fees that are charged into retail products quite typically. So you really need to think about what's the fee structure going to look like? How am I going to make that work? Do I need to think think about things like buy-sell spread, uh, recovering costs if there's any gearing ratios available within the product and the way that it's actually put together over time. So it's making sure that you can recover your operating costs in terms of running the vehicle. Really importantly, if, when you're looking at your product, is also to think about who's my competitor set. Managed investments have been around for you know, the better part of a couple of hundred years. So who am I competing against? Because that goes to, do I have a niche market or product offering that's a little bit different to everything else that's out there? Or do I need to think about going up against, you know, the big end of town and the Macquarie's and, and JP Morgan's and challenges of the universe who might already have a whole set of products sitting out there in that particular space? Time well, to market? When, when do you want to get there? You know, that's <laughs> huge. You covered off two or three things there, and I want to just segue into those and just to kind sure. of bound the problem so nobody's going to hold you down to this. But you mentioned duration. <laughs> so yep. is, is there a thing uh, not less than, you know, two months and not more than 10 years? Is there is there any kind of bounding you can give us on that? Look, it really depends on the product. The, the more traditional asset classes, things like fixed interest equity products, um, traditionally, they're sort of targeting uh, sort of anywhere from a three-year time period as the shortest possible end on something like fixed interest. 
through to maybe sort of 10 to 15 years when you're thinking about equity product and that directly relates to the level of risk that's involved. But when you get into things like some of the alternative asset classes like infrastructure, property, uh, even some of the more bespoke alternative classes like media vehicles and currency vehicles, you can sometimes be looking at a much longer perspective duration of time because they take longer to actually produce income returns and they have capital appreciation over a longer period of time. So, you know, an infrastructure fund might have a 30-year duration on it, whereas, you know, a currency vehicle could be in and out pretty quickly or, you know, you could be looking at a five-year period. Um, So quite, quite often the type of asset in the fund will provide a bit of boundary around the duration and length of time that you would want to operate the fund for. You flagged another area, too, that I made notes while we were chatting, and it was about valuation of the assets that are in the fund. Are those typically um, third-party valuations? Are they internal due diligence? How, how, How does that valuation process work? Generally speaking, valuations are done um, preferably. Best practice in market is certainly to have independent third-party sourcing valuations. So if I looked at real estate, for instance, typically you'll have uh, a professionally qualified valuer who has expertise in that area. So it might be a commercial office building or a retail shopping centre, even residential property. But typically you'll have a qualified valuer to be providing it. For things like equities and fixed interest, ordinarily you're using the data feeds that are coming from markets. So things like Bloomberg, uh, you might be using the, if it's an ASX fund, ASX 200, uh, live data market feeds for actually producing those valuations. Certainly, Australia has experienced its fair share of problems with I will do internal valuation and have them reviewed by an external party. And there's a yep. case going on at the moment, splashed all over the media as to why you might not want to be doing that. Uh, but usually, yeah, you, you will use an external third party supplier for valuation. You, you mentioned that there's, you know, the, the, the product might be targeted at either a retail or a consumer type market, the high network I- individuals and the more sophisticated investors, as well as the, um, you know, managed super funds and that sort of stuff. So again, yeah. is, is there a way to bound the fees so that people don't go, <gasps> when, when they hear the number of, the, of, <laughs> of what sits over the top of these things? Yeah, ordinarily for uh, non-retail investors, uh, you're sort of looking at anywhere, depending on the asset class, you can be looking anywhere from 25 basis points up to 100 basis points, depending on the type of asset. Uh, And the reason why is because of just the sheer economies of scale and the size of investment that flows through into product from that non-retail market. From a retail perspective, fees have typically ranged between sort of about 2% up to 4%, and it's normally an entry fee. So as you invest, um, you might may actually be hit with, say, a, a 2.5% fee per, you know, $5,000 or $10,000 that's invested into the product. Um, so they typically tend to be... Um, one-off fees as an entry fee there may, or it may be done as an exit fee and then during the year there'll be what's known as the ongoing management expense ratio or MER fee um, 
that will vary a little bit depending on the type of the asset class that the product's actually attached to. But generally speaking, it's around about 1% to 1.5% per year on a retail product for that ongoing fee. Um, It's really important for retail to be crystal clear about the fees and actually provide work dollar examples, which kind of goes into the second stream around actually administering a fund and what you need to think about in terms of to get something to market, what does that actually look like? That, that's a great segue. Thank you for that. 